and welcome back to another episode of In the Sheds on Code with Kingy, where this evening I'm very grateful to be joined by a former Highlander and Scottish international in John Leslie. Uh, first off, kia ora bro, and uh, how's life for you at the moment? Oh, kia ora Kingy, my life's good. I had uh, my oldest son's 21st last weekend, so that was quite a milestone for the family. We had a fun time and uh, mum and dad were down and my wife's uh, Mother Jam was in the mix and a whole lot of friends and family and lots of Jack's mates. So that's kind of been a, been what's going on. Middle of winter, um, supporting, you know, watching watching a bit of footy on Saturday afternoons and working family. That's uh, that's that's been me for the moment at the moment, mate. Oh yeah, how did um how that twenty first get on? Was it a big night? Yeah, it was good. It was good. It's um, we had it at the unit at the Otago Cricket long room and um great venue great staff and it really and no sound control because we just you know because we're in the middle of nowhere so that was good so we had that cranking up and um yeah it was a fun night so yeah nice and tidy the, the, the guys who are you know doing not they weren't kind of they were kind of bouncers but they weren't no, no one was making any trouble and they were super cool they were just fantastic they were just because they're quite mongols aren't they those 20 21 year olds i've forgotten I'm trying to think back as to whether I was a bit of a mongrel. I think I was, I was. I'm a bit of a softy, mate. So yeah, I don't know how they breathe them down in um down in Dunedin, but they're just, they're yeah. just messy. They're good. They're, it's all good, but they're just messy. They're just messy. Maybe I'm getting a bit, bit anal as I get older or something. But I'm just, you know, you know, anyway. So that was good. It was a fun party. Good to hear. Not much of a cleanup. No, that's the good thing about it. Yeah. So go the, if you go the long room for a for um. Hire out anyone that's got 21st going on. It's a great venue. Yeah, clean up, done. All right, I had to keep that in mind. But before you even got into that, or, or the rugby ball business for that matter, um, you did start off, or you, we were a professional athlete. Um, but before we roll into all of your accolades, I want to take it back to day dot, which is where I'll start. How did you even get into playing rugby and where did you grow up? Grew up in Petone in Wellington, which and, um, and just... And my dad was Andy Leslie, all, all black captain, you know. So, I mean, he was Patoni rugby guy through and through. And it was a darn successful um, club in the big scheme of things. So that was just down the road. But, hey, that was all going on. It was um, fun to do on a Saturday and lots of community all around. So I was going there as a, as a, as a young kid with my brother and um, tons of other families and kids as well. So that's where it all came from. And then just... It was there and um, started playing and enjoyed it. And I was really quite, um, really quite grateful looking back. My, you know, my mum and dad, dad was uh, in the 70s and um, Saturday morning shopping had just started. So dad used to miss a few of our games with my kids because he's working, you know, all black captain, but he's still working bloody lots of hours a week as it was back in the day. But mum, both mum, uh, both mum and dad, um, just, just really great supporters without being yelly or shouty or embarrassing, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So really lucky to have that and um, lots of encouragement, but no, no crazy weirdness on the sideline, which I, I, I just, just to fast forward to recent, that's a, 
that's a bit uh, that can get a bit crazy at, um, at, at any level of rugby at the moment. Eh? Gee, was I, I went to a club rugby game a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, oh my goodness, what's you could see how people didn't want to be a referee, you know? Anyway, so I was really lucky because we had none of that, none of that, um, you know, had really great support from my parents and played for the enjoyment, and and that's where it started from. Now, you mentioned the fact that you are the son of an all-black or and an all-black captain for that matter. So did you get a lot of stick growing up? And I know you mentioned the, the fact that you're, both your parents are really supportive, but did you ever feel any pressure into having to play the game that your old man excelled at? Um, I can remember getting a little bit of a ribbing at school, but it was, you know, I, I, was, I was only six when he'd finished up kind of thing. So by the time, you know, you're still in fantasy land there. Or maybe it was 1976, yes, yeah, so I would have been... Yeah, so still really young, and but I remember getting said a few things, but it kind of just brushes off, and it's a schoolyard thing. I think, you know, these days it'd be a lot harder, wouldn't it? You know, because you're having some chat in the schoolyard when you're a young fella, and someone says something, you can you can brush it pretty quickly, really. Whereas, um, you know, now with um, Instagram and Facebook and all that weird stuff that would go on, so. You could get a bit of a ribbing or feel the pressure, but um, no, no, I, um, li- li- not much at all. And um, yeah, there was, it was, it was all good, all good, really. And what was Dad's critique like after games? Was he, uh, you know, quite standoffish because he understand or because he understood, you know, his own background? Or yeah, well, he, he our, normally after say a game. As I say, Mum would be at every single game, and Dad, he was he was coaching Petoni when I was at high school, and that, and, you know the, the games were clashing at times and things like that. So, don't get me wrong, we'd be, we'd be trying to make it there as much as possible. But after the games, always just chilled out, win or lose, smile on the face, both Mum and Dad. And then, but when we do a lot of our chat, would be around the dinner table, you know, during the week on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, and just talk about talk about the game, you know. So that, and then it would just be nice and flowy and over dinner so that was how that was done so there's quite a lot of chat but it wasn't really game analysis and self-analysis and stuff it just wasn't really a thing back in the 70s I mean you know as nowhere near like it is now right I mean you have some comments but I mean the way that the game is um you know since it's gone pro and it's just like so polished now about how everyone's and the analysis on everyone and the, you know, the speed recordings and the impact recordings and the how many tackles and how many impactful rucks and um, offloads and doing you know, all that stuff. That's just um, so much more now than it was then. So it was, it was just pretty light and encouragement. And I was, I was always very competitive with rugby, you know, like, and, and sport. So I was always, King to king to give it heaps and um, and and it was listened to him and I'm sure a lot of families around New Zealand have um, sometimes they find a lot of uh, things in common kind of hard to come by but I'm sure there's a lot of families around New Zealand who sit around and talk about rugby and their opinions and really let it go and I'm sure it's it's a big part of our identity and our you know so much of we got opinions and. If someone pulls out something about the All Blacks and he should be playing, they should be playing. Everyone listens, goes, "Oh yeah, okay." And then they've got their opinion. They might have a bit of a, you know, discussion around it. But everyone, I think everyone can feel like they can have a go at it, which is a which is a cool thing because, you know, I've I've never been in a rugby club where I've um, I've 
everyone seems to be welcome, right? Doesn't matter what's going on. Come on in and come together because of the footy and have some chat and go from there. Hundred percent, mate. It's definitely the one of the few games that I can think of off the top of my head that um, welcomes all shapes, sizes. You know, it doesn't discriminate um, by any means. But so you talk about like you obviously grow up, you're playing for Petoni, and then from there you progress to St. Pat's Silverstream for your high school years. So I know that Petoni's like a bit out of the way from Silverstream. You know, me myself being an old boy at the school as well. So how did the decision come by to actually? you know, make the trip on the train out to Silverstream in comparison to catching the train inwards to town and going to Wellington College? Um, well, that's, yeah, I can remember it being floating around. I think it was, uh, there was a family called the Coles family. They're a big Catholic family in Petoni, and their boys all went through Silverstream. They're a bit older than uh, me and Marty. And they said, Pat Coles, the dad, and said, send your, send your kids there and and he probably had some contacts. And then um, I actually become, actually decided to become boarder up there. So I, I was a boarder for instance, day one, and fully went deep into it and, and, and really enjoyed it and got um, a whole lot of mates who, um, who are, we're having a reunion with this year, actually. And your dad's going to be there. So that'd be good. Oh, just another excuse for him to talk about um, all the great rugby stuff that he did, even though I'm not, half the time I'm not sure if he's lying to me, you know, some of the, some of the tales that he, cool but yeah i just sit there and listen to him but uh, I, I know how great the school is personally and how it shaped my life but for you what did you take away from your five years at stream you know especially with you being a boarder well it was a i take away from, from what i think of it now or from as soon as i left the walked out the gates what do you do you mean uh, either or mate like either, you know both on and off the field well now i look back and i said man that was a different time right it was like I wasn't even a naughty kid. I mean, I was a middle-of-the-road naughty kid, and I had 40 canes in third form, you know? The naughty <laughs> kids were getting 120, you know? Like, what the heck? You know, and that was my dad. Getting, like, the nerds were getting, the, yeah, and the nerds were getting, like, eight or nine or ten, you know? It was like, it was all, it was, so you had your socks down, you in the cane, you're doing something wrong. You're, so there's a lot of that going on. It was a big, a big, chunky school. It was like, bloody... 350 borders, almost 400 borders, and all lower North Island farmers and that. So it was, and it was a bit Lord of the Flies, you know, looking back on it now. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and so you walked out of there pretty, you're, you're, you're a pretty robust. And um, yeah, it was, but then you had a great group of mates. And, um, you know, the cool thing about that school was, though, it was, um, Everyone was the same. I think not even the, you know, we just had to wear a school uniform after school. You had to wear your school uniform every day. Of the, well, the weekends you could get into your, get into whatever you wanted to wear kind of thing. But I mean, every other day you're in your school uniform the whole time. And the maximum amount of money you could get out the pocket money office on the Wednesday and Saturday was $2.50. So no one had any money and everyone was dressed the same for like, you know, the whole time there, which was pretty cool. And, um, Looking back on it, that, that, that the distraction of all the flashy stuff wasn't there, which was a good thing, you know. I mean, and we um, just tons of sport and hanging out, and t- food was terrible. Food was terrible. That was bad. I think that's why I'm still so skinny. So I've got I've got nutrition problems at Silverstream. Oh well, um, and we'll fast forward to your last year at school because that was up until what was it. 2017 when they ran their um, awesome documentary that you were um, also a part of uh, talking about the school's traditionals and um, for those of you that don't know or who aren't familiar with um, 
sort of Wellington schoolboy rugby. Um, our school, along with another, along, along with another of them, along with a, a number of other schools in the region, they play traditional fixtures against uh, local schools, um, but also those sort of slightly other regions. So for Silverstream, it was Palmy Boys, New Plymouth Boys, Rungatai, St. Pat's Down, Wellington College, and now St. Bede's. I think it might have been a little bit different back in your day. My dad was saying that I think they played like Rathkeel or a number of other schools. But um, more to the point, your last year of school, you guys did the six and six and it took another what was it yeah close to 30 years for it to be done again so I, I only take you to that time because I know how big a year year 13 is for most men so like what did you take away from that rugby year and you know even though the game was still amateur at the time did that sort of shape your perspective on like where you wanted to go with rugby once you left school um yeah, it did. It was just such a good, as you say, it was just such a big hype. You know, high school is so much hype. You get good crowds and, it's, and it means so much and you've got so much time to prepare and, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic. So um, that, that year was great. And um, so to, to shape me as a rugby player, I, th- I think so. it gave me a taste of really enjoying it and feeling like I, and I, and I enjoyed training and, and, and getting really fit because I wasn't the fastest or the, the biggest guy so I thought I might as well try to be as fit as I can and did push me in good stead because I was, you know it was just a great team to be involved in and you get, get winning success and you go man I'd love to taste that again and then um, yeah so it did, it did give, me, give, me a, give me a lot of encouragement and enjoyment so that, that certainly made me want to keep on going for sure. And then so from there you went down to Dunedin and what was the plan? Like, what were you studying down there? And did you have the whole rugby set up before you'd even got down there? No, everyone just used to turn up. And the plan was to go through university and I did uh, physical education, which um, was quite popular back then, especially with a lot of the rugby boys. I think it was, and now there was like uh, Aaron, Aaron PNA, John Timu, Jamie Joseph, Josh Cromfeld myself um, and there was more we we're all, all doing phys ed but the the guy who was um running the phys ed school was the, the king rugby man rex thompson and so he used to keep an eye out for rugby guys and, and 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 he obviously had a bit of a you know i don't know he just he, that's what happened we ended up there i've got a brilliant story now this is this is about john Timo and um rex thompson so we were um at the varsity rugby club and this was um 1990 and it was seven o'clock at night and we're you know the game was on three o'clock in the afternoon whatever and so we had a court session and middle of winter so it's 6 30 7 o'clock at night and taking a outside for a pit stop or whatever it was and in between the court session and we went outside and you could just see across the university oval it just had the uh, like the, the the steam coming off the oval it's freezing cold and then in come these lights, these two headlights in this car, and they come screaming onto um, uh, the Varsity Oval, number one, and did a big donut, and then just boom, just putted out in the middle, and, and we were like, what was that, the Bogans, what's going on, who's that? And Rex Thompson goes, whoever is in that car will never play for Varsity again. And we um, all run over, all run over to the car, and we go, what is, what's going on there? Is it, who, who is this? So we get closer and closer, and JT's at the front wheel, and um, and Rex Thompson he used to like have about sixty durries a day. He was ca- ca- um, uh, coming up the back, and he pushed his way through the circle and pushed his way. And he was so angry, and he looked across at John Timmy and he said, 
JT, don't do that again. <laughs> You're like, the boys are cranking up. So JT, you're moving again. Yeah. He was at that stage, uh, JT was in the All Blacks, you know. <laughs> yeah. The man, you know, the man just come back from being Wales and we got an All Blacks as a, like an 18 year old or something. So, yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, back then, yeah, you wouldn't want to do it. I mean, yeah, you might want oh. to maybe or not. I don't know, mate. But, There's yeah. always exceptions to the rule, um, especially for your gun players, <laughs> <laughs> like what team it was. Yeah, how was that? I just say you always make exception for your gun players. So, and it, it always seems to be like th- with those situations, it's how they turn out. Hey, there's always the the teacher's <laughs> peer or the coach's everyone, favorite. Yeah. Well, yeah, and everyone goes, yeah, okay, for, yeah, I get that. I get that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but one of, one of my questions, um, you know, in relation to your time down in Dunedin is because, like, like I mentioned before, you did play during the amateur era. And so when, when I look at, when I've looked at your Wikipedia and I see that you made your debut for Otago in 91, and I'm not sure, you know, before that, whether or not you were doing pre-seasons with them or how that sort of stuff worked, but you would have got down there before 91. So you would have been, you would have spent at least two or three club seasons. And, you know, nowadays the top rugby players from around the country, doesn't matter where they end up, you know, they're generally in some sort of high performance program and they're being groomed to play for the senior teams, you know, like the, what the Highlanders basically are now, you know, that's what Otago would have been like for you. So in that mm. time before you made your debut for the top team, you know, how, how did your time down there work, you know, rugby wise? Cause you know, it's still, again, it's still amateur. So you're not even getting paid. So you're just studying and then, Working and just playing top footy. And, and, and there was there was a it was quite a good thing. We were talking about uh, PE before. I mean, um, what it did is it gave us some insight into how to train hard. And we used to go and uh, me and Josh and Jamie and Aaron and the boys. We used to go and train together. And we'd actually, looking back on it, we were quite smart and quite tough trainers. So um, so we just train and study and party and rugby and happy days. Living the dream. Okay, yeah, it sounds like you found the perfect blend, or you know, you you seem to find a better a, a balance better than some of my mates who've gone down there, even though they weren't the rugby player you were. But anyway, ninety one, you make your debut for Otago. Like, how did that come about? You know, were you were you Mister Consistent for a couple of seasons at club level, and then got your opportunity, or were you fortunate enough to? Well, not fortunate, but you know, were there a couple of injuries that saw you bring into the squad? You know, how did it all come about? Um, I think I got my first look in it with the um, Otago Sevens because they used to play the Sevens at the start of the year. So I turned up early and committed to that and you turn up and you, it's, you, you can, you got a nice chance to show yourself without, yeah, it was good having the Sevens at that time of year. You know, everyone used to turn up, use the Sevens as a fitness prep for the season, get into the Sevens, got a, got a bit of a look there and then got invited along to a practice and um, just, trained as hard as I could, you know, and just thinking, just want to hold it, hang in there, and then got my um, got my chance for the first game as a, yeah, 20-year-old with Laurie Mains as a coach, who was like old school, you know, it's like seriously old school and um, pretty darn scary, but that was, um, that was fine. If that's what, it, if that's what was going around at the time, just, just take it and get on with it and um, try your hardest. And then you're there and you feel like the junior for a while, but then you just, do your time and into it. So it's it's. I suppose you could say it came across, it came came along kind of kind of quickly, but but not. I didn't feel like it was rushed or anything. And and it's you, you turn up and you just as you say there was no 
there's no promises. There's no there's no you're in. You just have to turn up, and and that's quite a good thing because you just turn up and you say, who's who else is here? Who else do I have to be fitter than? Who else do I have to be keener than? Rather than some guy who's signed up who's doesn't play any club footy and you know is mm. in, in the team. They're in the team. So I, I like that. Maybe if it, maybe if everyone had to be signed up and organised, I, I, I might not have got picked up, you know, because as we know, there's a lot of good players that just don't get that, what is it, the academy contract or whatever they whatever they talk it up as. Yeah, it's sort of the, that's probably one of the, the glaring problems that I've talked about in the past on the podcast, the fact that, you know, you get a lot of these gun high school players. So, you know, like, I don't want to take anything away from them, you know, I feel like they have earned the opportunity in a way, but like you said, when you wrap them in cotton wool and they play bugger all club rugby and they're, they're well, my point is, is that there isn't really an incentive for guys who miss that boat or miss these academies or miss these development contracts to really stick at the game, because it's almost like nowadays that once you sort of pass maybe 2021, that if you aren't in the system, it's pretty darn hard to get into it. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. It so does. It so does. And I've, but I've, I've also had some experience where, where, where guys get in, they think they really want to get into the academy. You know, this is, you know, a, a high profile guy. I'll, I'll say uh, Machu Walters, you know, lead singer of 660. Mm-hmm. So him and Eli, they played, um, I coached him for four years when I was at Varsity and um, Machu got identified as a, you know, and he was a, Gee, he was a good guy to coach. Eh? He, was, he was such a good leader and such a tough guy and skillful and good team man and easy to coach, you know, low maintenance, turns up on time, you know, goes hard, brilliant. But um, he got identified, and rightly so, as a, a player with pro, uh, promise and, you know, got in, I think it was in the Otago Academy. And he, he just, you know, just too much, you know, too much analysis, too much training, too much. And I think... There's not, it's not just him. There's a lot of kids that go, well, it seems like I'm giving a lot and I'm not necessarily, I'm, I'm, I'm getting critiqued and told to be, a, be here, be there. And am I really getting anything back from it? Because, you know, people, people are pretty good at reading the, reading the situation and don't get me wrong. You, the, the, a lot of kids, they stick it for a while, not kids, young men, but two or three years or four years. And you, you're kind of going, well, Shit, it just rugby. Maybe it's not that as enjoyable as what it could be, you know. You raise a good point, and uh, again, not to um, bring up um, some of the older discussions that I've had, but you know, when you look at the way that the high school game has gone, and almost like the the professionalism of you know high school kids now, you know, a lot of these guys, even though it's frowned upon, you know, they're being scouted at 12, 13, and before they get to high school, you know, especially with the lure of rugby league just over the ditch that like you said, everything's just so regimented and there's video analysis and rah 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 that it, it, like you said, it can take away from just going out there and playing rugby. You know, like it's almost like you have to be this robot because you've got to follow all these different systems. And especially like now, like there's probably not as much partying as there was done in your day. And, you know, like you said, with social media and all of the influence that has, and, you know, like guys can't even go out for beers nowadays because, you know, they've got to be these athletes that, Oh, yeah, like you said, with, with, with Machu, for example, where even though he was a, a pretty classy rugby player by the sounds of it, that it can all be just a little bit too much too soon. Yeah, and just, it just, it just, it just not, not balanced enough, you know, just too much, you know. 
and the other thing about it is there's this uh, the other you know and you, all the glory of the high school first have been stuff now and all the hype and, and you know it's really cool you know it's, it's so cool and so many players it'll be the, the pinnacle of it but if you're in a really serious setup like that and you're in, also in the academies etc like then they've got their big setups going on these young players young men and young women are taking they're getting quite a lot of few impacts under them you know they, they're getting you know every training you're getting quite a lot of quite a lot of contact you know even if it's just running into a pad or lots of contact training so you get to 22 or 23 and they've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of quite quite big contacts you know under the belt which maybe not the best thing you know yeah. whereas previously you'd, you'd that would kind of that wouldn't be rushed so much no no i, I agree with you 100 mate this the like you said the the load that a lot of these younger athletes are taking on like you said, if they are doing their academy top-up trainings on top of their first 15 stuff. And then, you know, I, I've spoken to quite a few boys who, you know, they were 18-year-olds fresh out of school and then they're going and doing, you know, super rugby pre-seasons. And then on top of playing against, you know, men at club rugby level, they're having to, to go off and play their academy games or whatever. And then if you're really, really good, you get fast-tracked into the men's game playing the NPC level. And I know that the standard of rugby has dropped off a lot, you know, since probably your heydays, but all of those contact sessions and all of all of the mileage that you get up, you know, doing the different fitness blocks, they do add up. And if you've been at it since 16, 17, you know, like by the time, like you said, you get to 22, 23, you know, you can be carrying, you know, quite a few niggles that are going to impact you for the rest of your, you know, not even your rugby career, but your life. Yeah. 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 So it's, mm -hmm. um, it's a, that's quite, and, you know, and, and there's, you know, there's so much more, training of the impact and and kind of rightly so and but there's just so much more contact and guys are getting coached about how to really put some power through their body now whereas we're aware of it i don't get taught properly how to, to tackle until i went to and this is might sound weird until i went to england in 1999 where we had a defense coach and the tackle sessions you know it was a bit. It was a bit early. It was a bit moronic. It was a bit back in the day. So we were like having to run smack into each other at each other um, full training, which I was like hating. I was like, oh my god. But um, yeah, that was um, England in two thousand and three. England were the only team. This is to take a defense coach to the World Cup, and they won it. They're the only team that had a defense coach at the two thousand and three World Cup. New Zealand didn't. So that was when everyone's going. Oh, we needed one. <laughs> Yeah, look at all the gains we're getting from them. So that was, at the, you know, that I mean, not the startup, but, you know, it was all the gains again. But then it's just, then it's just, you know, it just keeps on going. And it's just such a um, coaching machine now. And when it comes back down to that club level, it's finding that balance, you know. So as you saying, we were saying early on, hardy, hardy people and community people and good fun. And one of the cool things about club footy is the unpredictability. And, and it's, it's sad when you see, the you know your, your your kids teams or you know a lot of rugby teams trying to trying to replicate the style of these you know the all blacks and the other super rugby teams who train it all week it's quite hard to do you know the you know mm -hmm. rather and 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 that you know the expectancy of you have to do this in this part of the field that's way more now than what it was it was before you could you you it was a lot more like have a go, you know, but now everyone's understand how to de defend better and tackle better and the field seems smaller, doesn't it? You know, so yeah, just, yeah. 
Just different, hey, different. Look at us, man. We're solving all the rugby problems. That's the thing. But the crazy thing, about the other thing about rugby, eh? like how I mean, you watch the game now. You know, some of the refs get a hard time, eh? especially the club refs. And some of them are just young fellas. But man, there's a lot of rules, and it's moving fast. And it's 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 a it's and then the rules change every year. That's pretty out of it for rugby. Eh? Like you've got a sport that actually. The culture is it, rules change all every year, like not one, like eight. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There is, um, yeah, there is a, very much so an overcomplication of what is really when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it. A pretty simple game. Yeah, um, yeah. But getting back to more your career, mate. Um, you know, and we'll we'll finish up here with Otago. You amassed more than a century of caps, and actually ended your first class career with them when you retired from the game in two thousand and four. But Amongst all those games that you played are some pretty famed battles and seasons, which include a win over the British and Irish Lions in 1993, a win over the Springboks in 1994, and the MPC title in 98. Um, so if you can, you know, what do you recall of those fixtures? And ultimately, you know, like how, you know, over the course of your rugby career, because you did play for a number of different teams, you know, where does playing for Otago stand for you? Um, Otago is uh, just, um, it's, it's it's my true team. It's my uh, my true spirit team, and uh, this is just in my own head. And it's um, but it's you know play with such good mates, and we're all young, and uh, we transition through amateur to pro. All just and and we've got those great great success games, you know, the Lions beating them, beating the Springboks. Final ninety eight was great. There was a little bit of a turnover from from ninety one when I started. And till, till 98, as you'd expect, I turned in at the, as the young guy in 91 and I was the old guy in 98 type of thing. And um, yeah, and that just lots of, uh, lots of, just felt really free. It felt really, really orderly, but really free. Just like, I mean, for those games, it'd be like, people would just all sit on the side of the, sit on the side of the field to the, you know, just like you hear all the stories of the terraces and it was just, you know, your, your mates would sneak into the aftermatch and, or they'd, you know, forge some um, media media badge so they could get in there. And next thing you'd be in there, there'd be a whole lot of group of lads that, you know, they'd sneak, they'd sneak in there and you're drinking booze with them and they're on the free beers and just really good. And then also just playing with some, um, we were stacked with All Blacks back then, you know, and, and star All Blacks as well. So that was that was fun on the front foot. And the team was, yeah, our loose forwards were really good and our backs were really good and our tight Five, you know, for the most part, other than 98, by the time 98 rolled along, we had Case was Anton Oliver, Carl Hoff in the front row. So we were like killing everyone. But before that, we were a bit hit and run in the, in the tight five. So we, we had our, put our style around that and we knew we just had to, the best option for us was to give the ball quickly to Jeff Wilson or John Timu, chase them and then go play from there. So to, just, just, to, just to get the opposition forward pack moving off the, off, off an early, you know, an early play in the, in, when you're from a set piece and that just set the tempo for the game. And it was, it was just really fresh and fun and just really cool. So that was, that was great. And it was great to have the success as well and the big crowds and um, genuine hype and excitement, I thought anyway, and a nice, nice, nice Saturday nights out as well. I remember one game I went to, um, it was after one game, we played Waikato in a semi-final and there was me and Jamie Joseph and Aaron Penne and we're at um, it was a hamburger bar and um, and the Jamie went up there and ordered oh, said oh, uh, Aaron went up and ordered and said I'll have um, two hamburgers and a and a chips 
and a milkshake. And the guy said, oh, Aaron Penne, great game yesterday, mate, great game. And, and he said, you can have it for free. And then Jamie, Jamie's uh, ears <laughs> perked up. And he goes, I'll have uh, two hamburgers, uh, apple pie, uh, chips, uh, a milkshake, and a, 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 a six-pack of uh, nuggets. And he went, oh, Jamie Joseph, Jamie Joseph, well, yeah, that was a awesome game you played yesterday, mate. Let's, let's have it on the house. And I went, oh, yeah, okay. So I put my order in, and the guy goes, oh, that'd be $9.50. <laughs> Like an owl. What? Oh, oh, Aaron, Aaron, and Jamie just last game. You Yeah. I was gonna say from that era. I mean, on on top of like all the experiences that we just touched on, a lot of the wins that you had, and some of the players that you played with. You know, you mentioned someone like John Timu and Jeff Wilson and Jamie Joseph. Do you guys like still keep? in touch with each other because i know like obviously like now with the professional of the game and you know your iphones and your facebooks and your instagrams that you know a lot of today's players because of how much time they spend with each other um they are quite um interwoven or they, it's easy to to link back up but you know do you touch base with a lot of the boys that you you know you started your career off with yeah well we we're super tight and then we all we'll, we'll fell off right because we all went across the, all around new zealand and then um you know all or and all across the world so we and, and because we didn't have you know email was just going, coming out oh, i got the email and then you know in 2000 i thought that was pretty cool but you know and then so it kind of fell off a bit and we're having families and all that kind of stuff still kept in touch and and occasionally but now we've all come back and with technology yeah we're um we're having we have heaps of time together it's great we um aaron Pino's son's actually flats with my boy and poured his yard glass for him on on saturday night and then um, Jamie was there as well. And, you know, JT came in contact with him. Mark Ellis, of course, he did plenty to do with him. So we do keep, um, we do keep connected for sure. And so it's, it's really great. And the technology has made that um, so much easier. You know, it's easy to just drop a funny thing you've seen on YouTube or whatever and send it on to your mates, get a few laughs and, you know, keep, you know, and, and, and you're, you're, you're connected again, you know? So, and then, you, and then that just, gets better and better and our, our families all get on so that's great and hang out hang out quite a lot yeah unreal man um i know that for me a lot of the boys that i play rugby with you know i'll, I'll you know I'll, obviously i'll stick in touch with them you know due to like the, the technology that i have at my disposal these days but yeah it, it's weird like if you if you for someone who's never played rugby and i guess it's probably different for you because you know you played in the professional area and you were training and you're around these guys a lot more often than than i am with my club mates or the guys that i went to school with but I find that, you know, you can't, there's nothing quite like a rugby relationship because you're literally putting your body on the line for the guy next to you. And you probably don't do that in any other walk of life outside of, you know, maybe another contact sport or if you're in the army. I don't know. Did you, do yeah. you find that similar for you? Yeah, it's got to have that. It's, it's, it, yeah, for sure. For sure. You're, um, it's great, isn't it? You're, you're, you're in, there, in there with each other. Very primal, you know, mm. all that stuff. Genuine nerves. That's why I look at those MMA fighters and then I know it's boxes. I go, oh my God, how nervous. Because you get nervous for a rugby game, eh? And you're kind of thinking, sometimes you think, oh, what if, you know, deep down you're going far out. What if, you know, you get smashed or whatever. And, but you know, you've got your 14 mates with you and you're, um, you're all there together. And you know, really, someone's not going to go out there and punch your head in or anything. <laughs> and you've got all the mates, you've got all your friends around you. But those guys that go out and just those one-on-one combats, I'm going, oh my God, how 
how much is going through them, eh? Like far yeah. out in there on their own. So that's the nice thing about rugby. It's um, the culture of rugby is great, eh? Like we, you can have a grizzle about the the way the competitions are run and the um, you know the, the too many rules and all that kind of stuff. But the culture is just great. The culture is just um, very open. And New Zealand's just got such a you know it's All Blacks New Zealand's best brand, surely. And and New Zealand's held in really quite high regards around the world. It's quite a sexy place, you know, like it's, it's good. There's only five million of us. So if you're in Europe or in America and that, it's, it's, it's white, right? You know, like New Zealand, mm. maybe not much. If you're really, um, so that's, that's great. And um, it just, uh, it's so international as well, you know, and a lot of these other countries, they, their rugby personalities is not as across everyone like New Zealand. And, the beautiful thing about that is that everyone across New Zealand has get you you got those you got that connection, you know. It really um truly is nothing like that. Um but yeah man, I do want to get back to you, even though I love going off on these tangents. Um I am mindful of the, the time for you to 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 be able, you know, to have this time. I'm very grateful for it. So question back to your career. You were in the prime of your career, so to speak, uh, when the game transitioned from amateur to professional uh, in 1996. And going off what you've told me already, the fact that, you know, like you study PE and how much training meant to you, because like you said, you, you were never the fastest or the strongest, but, you know, you thought if you worked the hardest that, you know, it would ultimately um, pay the greatest dividends. So did you find the transition going into that first Super Rugby tournament in 1996, you know, relatively easy, you know, given the lifestyle and the work ethic that you'd had with your rugby, you know, up until that point in comparison to maybe yeah. some others? Well, I think it was, it was, it was, it went in quite soft because it went pro really quickly. So like we had, we still only had one forwards coach and one backs coach, I think, and, and one trainer. And, you know, so it was, it was still pretty light. I think we went to training to three times a week, something like that. So, um, and then don't get me wrong, the, the, the fitness guys that we had there, they were going great, but they were just all learning this as well. And the, the facilities went, it all just happened so quickly. So it was a little bit of a role in there. But no, we just loved it, you know, because train hard, dig it in, and then you're getting paid for it. Just couldn't, you know, we, we could believe it, but it was just, it was just fantastic. It was just, um, the transition to it was, it was easy because we, oh, I can only I speak for myself because I loved it. You know, it was easy. It was something I loved doing. It was like, didn't feel like it was a chore at all. It was just like, oh, this is, this is amazing. What about whilst you're in it, like, were they as big on obviously they weren't as big on stuff like recovery and nutrition as what they are these days but I'm guessing it would have been different like you said being paid to play rugby and you know you're training you know mostly to get yourself prepared for Saturday so over the course of that first season even though it was pretty fresh and it did happen so quickly like were you going out and doing recovery sessions or was it almost just the same old but like you said, well, you're just getting yeah, paid no, to do people it. People go, I just go to the swimming pool and just, and then, then, you know, the, the swimming pool chat room, there were sun, Sunday sessions in the pool. And, you know, our, our trainer was a guy, Matt Blair. He's, 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 he was smart and he was good. But it was a lot of it was also just managing the boys because you get some guy go, oh, I've never done that. You know, it, was, it wasn't like now. So this is what you have to do. It was like it, he, was, he was managing the boys into it and we were working it out for ourselves. So, um, there, so that was 96. And then I... Um, finished in 2004 and in that time it got it got pretty progressive in the amount of time you know it took a couple of seasons to get up to it but um it still had a there was still a lot of player decisions like you know like well how are we going to do this like speaking of tony brown i had a week with the highlanders probably i think it was before 
pre, uh, not this Christmas, last Christmas, the Christmas before, I had a week with them just to go into camp and learn from them. And, that. and Brownie was saying, you know, back in the days, you'd get your, you get your eight senior guys and, okay, we've got this team, we've got this opposition this week and uh, what do you reckon? So you haven't even got time for that. They're doing that, I think it was 10 days out or, you know, at least eight days out or whatever it was for the opposition and the coaches go in there, they analyse the team, they, they report back to the top end players, they get buy in there and this is what we're doing. You know, whereas we had we had the old VHS recorder, so there was a there was a there was a bit more mystery. It was probably not a bad thing for rugby now because everyone everyone played a little bit different and didn't know what everyone was doing. Now it seems like everyone's kind of plays the same. You know, I mean, it's just the way it's just the way it's all progressed so quickly. You know, technology around it and the measuring of everything and that is, I would have loved it. The stats, I would have loved having all those stats because you know it would have worked. I think it would have worked for me, but. Um, it, it, it was it was kind of cool not having it as well and then getting a taste for it, you know, after that as well. Exactly, mate. Yeah, and again, not to branch off again, but, you know, you talk about, like, the way that the game's being played nowadays. You know, don't even get me started on the amount of box kicks that we're seeing these days and how everyone's defending the same and the, mm. the way that kicking has influenced the way the game is played and how everything's so territory-based. So, yeah, it, it must have been, yeah, quite cool for you as players back then even though you were trans- transitioning into the professional game and you knew that all that stuff was going to come, but like you said, to rock up on a Saturday and then having to almost adjust on the fly because you didn't know what the opposition was bringing to the plate that week, you know, whether that be back moves, you know, stuff from set piece, you know, even stuff well, like subst- then, substitutions yeah. and the influence that had when they were introduced. Yeah, that's right. And we'd play more like, there'd be more like a, you know, you could have a really structured coach, like, like you know, we're talking... Laurie Maines earlier on when I first made the Otago team, but and he was really structured and expected you to do this part of the field. But he had some success, he had, but but you know uh, it was a bit wooden. And then our next coach, Gordy Hunter, came in, and, and most of the coaches would would at that of the of the at that era they'd coach to a theme rather than absolute plays. Like we're gonna, like I said to you earlier on, we're gonna we're gonna move that ball wide to our gun players, our, you know our best players, just so they had to be on the wings or fullback. Give the ball, give them the, give them a rip early. See what goes off then, and and in the meantime, our forwards are going to sprint their out, sprint their forwards across the paddock because our ones are a bit small, and then we're going to play from there. It was more themey rather than, you know, in this part of the field doing this, this here and defend there, and, and just so that was good. It was good to experience that because I don't think the pro rugby will probably go back to that. They'll the the coaches will feel too undercooked. They all they'll think that. They have to do more, you know. They have to coach more and and be all over it, and and, and probably fair enough too, you know, just because they they want to win the game and squeeze the percentages as much as they can. Yeah, mate, you're not wrong there. But you go on and you, and like you said, you spent three seasons with the Highlanders, and you were actually the team's first ever captain. And in your last year, uh, the team ends up making the semi-finals, um, but you went down to the eventual winners in the blues and the reason i bring that up or you know the, the interesting me interesting thing for me over that time is that you know, yep you make the top four uh in your last season for the team but the previous year you guys finished last so what happened within the space of 12 months where you guys go from being you know the wooden spooners to just losing out i think you guys only you guys lost by less than 10 points in that semi-final you know within well, the space lost, of 12 months uh... We lost when um, our, one of our players dropped the ball on the line to win the game. He just had to catch the ball and fall over. Well, there you go. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Um, yeah, good point. Um, that 
we had this really strong coach in 96 and, he, and Gordon Hunter and he went on to coach the be involved with the Blues and the All Blacks and but he was a really special character and we just loved him so much he was quite far removed from a technical rugby coach he was very much handover and um and he just had this the strength of just wanting to play for him so hard he, and never feeling never having fear when you're playing for him he just and and he had this amazing ability to hand over trust so that was him and, and it worked that was in 96 and he was the coach that we were a successful Otago team and bet the Lions and bet the Springboks with and you know uh, that was he was just this unique spirit and if you want to hear a story from any of the lads of my era and the Otago team ask if they can tell a Gordy Hunter sto- Gordon Hunter story and or knock your socks off the guy's just a, he's just a gem he's he, he died of cancer at about 50 years old um, yeah great, great guy so that was him and then in 98 we had a, um, a coach then the, the coach in 97 it just I don't know, we just didn't gel. I'm not saying just the coach, but just the whole thing just didn't gel. And um, and then in 98, there was a change in the coach and Tony Gilbert came in to do it. He wasn't wasn't an ego guy at all. Just wasn't a power, just was was quite happy. Don't get me wrong, he was the boss, but he was good at, he was good at empowering people. And then, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty, we're getting some good recruitment then too. You know, we're we're pretty getting some pretty gun players around us. So we then we then we we kept on and and got on the front foot and yeah, got 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 the wins that mattered. But it's it's I, I think it would, if you look back on that, it was come down to uh, a, it's almost like a, a spiritual thing rather than a, uh, the technical thing. You know, just the team spirit. You know, and we're probably hurting about coming last before because that was just no good. You know, so. We were being reasonably successful before that. When rugby went pro, they used to have a Super 10 series, which the top four provincial teams in New Zealand would go and play against the top four South African Curry Cup teams and the two best Aussie teams. And you wouldn't know who they were. You had to make the top four. And so we, with Otago, we never we never missed out on the top four. So we were, you know, we're reasonably successful. We were pretty successful through the 90s. And then when we came last, I'm sure that gave us a kick in the pants and we thought we don't want to taste that again. Kind of like what happened with Jamie's team, right? They came last, and two years later they won it in 2015. Yep. I um, yeah, I don't like to recall on on, on that memory. Just you know, given me being uh, a hurricane, that's, hurricane that's supporter. James of Rugby ever watched? Oh my god, that was fun. That was a brilliant, brilliant day. I think Wellington was about like felt like 20 degrees in the middle of it, wasn't it? It was just amazing. I actually camped out for tickets for that game. Because I'd missed the initial sales, and they were getting well, what they'd done is that to reward the the heartiest rugby fans in Wellington, they had a a pop up sale down on the waterfront or out the yeah. front at the front of Tapapa. And but what you had to do is that you had, so the line started, I think at about seven thirty the, the night before, even though the game so seven thirty on a Thursday night, and the game was on the Saturday. And so me and my mates got down there because we missed out on the initial release, and you know we we slept out for our tickets. Um, and, and, and what had been a really great year for, you know, the Hurricanes, you know, you had Martin Nonu come back, Conrad Smith, Bowden Barrett was sort of hitting his straps, you know, TJ Pettinato, you know, with this gun team. And, you know, and, and like what's sort of been talked about with that Highlander team, they just flew under the radar that year. You know, they were just these battlers who sort of just hung in there, but no one sort of gave them a sniff. And then obviously they went on this finals run, but because of the, the juggernaut that the Hurricanes had been the whole year, you know, no one gave them a chance. And then rocking into that game, it was just like, 
you know, when Elliot Dixon's try got awarded, which I still don't think was a try, but hey, you know, you, you have to play to the way the referee plays. And then like you, like, well, like you just mentioned with your semi-final, you know, like a guy drops the ball over the line, you know, Julian Severe scores that try nine times out of 10 and he drops it. And yeah. then, yeah, old, old Marty Banks, the the, the cult Super figure, has, star, to, has, to kick, has, <laughs> has to kick the drop goal against the team I think he was contracted to 12 months before, you know? So, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, obviously, like, a, a great moment for all of those boys. But, yeah, just for me, um, a bit of heartache being in the stands, given what I put myself through only two nights earlier. Oh, that's brilliant. And we just loved it because we were ahead the whole game and the, you could just feel the whole... You could feel, mm. the, te- you could feel the Hurricane supporters... And the players, you could just feel it strangling, and we, you could just, we just stayed ahead the whole time. Oh, it's fantastic. Lima Sapawanga yeah. as well, Wellington boy, you know, yeah. kicking all his goals yeah. on the day. Yes. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> but again, um, I, I, seen, I went out that night. I went out with that night with the boys, and I went to a pub, and Shane Christie was there, and he was still in his kit. He was out on his, 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 his what's going on, mate? What, rugby boots and all? Uh, I didn't have his boots on, just um, a trainers, I think, yeah. or just socks, socks, shorts, jersey. I said, "What are you up to, man?" He goes, "I'm so happy. I can't, I can't, I can't finish it." <laughs> I was like, "Freddie, I love you." Legendary, legendary. Yeah. Um, but again, man, more back to you. '98, uh, you wrap up with the Highlanders, and you head over to the UK on the premise of playing Test football for Scotland. Um, and you end up making your debut against the South Africans at Murrayfield alongside your brother, which I'm guessing would have been um, a special occasion. And um, I'd love for you to talk about that. But how did the opportunity even come about playing for Scotland? Had it been something you'd always had in the back of your mind or was it something that was only, you know, sort of thrust um, into your life, maybe towards, you know, that, that, that your last couple of years with the Highlanders? Yeah, well, just, it was, it was a, a thrust, all right, because I was at... Uh... I've been out to Japan. I hadn't got picked to the All Blacks. Okay, so that's that's not going to happen. So Jamie was in Fukuoka playing for Sunix. So he said, uh, so he did some groundwork for me, and I went over and visited him. And I signed with Sunix, and they were starting. So we finished in New Zealand in like say November or October, whatever it was, and uh, the Japanese we were coming together. My contract was starting in like. February or something like that so I had like four months to kill and so I'll go up to Scotland and play there and like next minute I got shoulder Jim Telfer well I think I got invited come on up to Scotland and play for Glasgow so I did that and 11 days later and the Scottish team got tapped next minute playing international rugby big crowds heaps of fun uh, we had a good team as well which was which was cool because Scotland's it's kind of kind of like Samoa Tonga, you know. There's not that many players. It's um, pretty small player base, and so you can you can get rocked for depth pretty quickly. But it just so happened we got a, had a good team there, and in '99 we ended up winning the Five Nations, which was um, you know we were 100 to one outsiders before the first game, and um, all that happened like so. Um, so that was happening, and I and, and I was trying to juggle Japan and Scotland together. So I went ended up having, doing my season in um, Japan and then coming back and basing myself in the UK because it was just, I had the international rugby going on there and it was just, I didn't think I was going to get it and it was tons of fun. And, uh, you know, unfortunately you can't be in two places at once. We, we, all, we all wish we could be in three places at once, but you just can't. So chose chose the UK and um, did that. So Scot- Scotland lived 
four years and four year, four or five years in England, which was fun as well. And had my kids over there. So they've got one's got a Scottish passport and the other one's got an English one, so that's good. And yeah, so that was that's how that one went. Yeah, sounds very handy for your young fellas. Um, once the, the borders open back up um, and they're allowed to travel. But you mentioned the fact that you won a five nations, which is really the only important thing that Scotland's won since the game turned professional. Um, I see that you also played at the Rugby World Cup later that year. Um, and then again, back to that five nations, you actually scored the fastest ever test try, which is a record that still stands today. So, and then amongst all that, obviously you earned 23 caps um, between 98 and 2002. So, and you've talked about how special Otago was for you and it being your spirit team. And, you know, you had a bit of success with the Highlanders and then bang, you get your taste of international rugby. And although, you know, you didn't quite realize your all black dream. So, you know, what, what was, what was it like playing for Scotland? You know, given like you said that it was, that it was only really thrust onto you, thrust at you um, at short oh. notice, you know, like where did, like looking back on it now, like did you fully appreciate at the time, you know, what you were doing or who you were playing for? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I got in a bit of trouble because at uh, one stage there, yeah, because like we had like about six Kiwis in the, in the team, and um, you know I was typical Kiwi. I just didn't want. I, I didn't want to be too shouty or skyty, and I didn't want to go over there and start telling the. I thought it was really legit place I was coming from. I didn't want to. So people say, well, how, how does it feel to be, you know, Scottish and and doing this? And I always said, hey man, total respect. I'm absolutely loving it. But I came across and I, I said something like. I don't want to sit here and tell my Scottish mates who have been living here their whole life and I've been here five minutes how to how to how to be proud Scottish, you know. But I, mm. and it just got misconstrued by the media and I got painted out to be a bit of an ungrateful guy. And I was just like, oh my god, this is terrible. But the good news was the players and the team knew I wasn't like that at all, taking anything for granted. And um, you know, sometimes the media can can squeeze you like that. And um, but it was cool, you know, big crowds, you know, playing 70,000, you play against Scotland versus Wales and you got 30,000 from Wales and 40,000 from Scotland there, kind of, you know, as maybe not quite spot on, but you got 70,000, 80,000 people at these games and you got 25,000 away supporters, you know, it's just everyone singing and into it and um, just so much fun. And it was, it was really cool back then as well because... It was the transition between amateur rugby and pro rugby, so the after matches were just absolutely off the cha- off the charts. So um, it was it was pro rugby. We were getting paid good money, and but the after matches were like they were hangover from the amateur days. So after straight after the match, so this example example, this went on for a couple of seasons. It was so yeah, I, at first I thought it was a bit weird, but then I just after about halfway through the first one I went oh my god this is so, so much fun so yeah um so the, at the after match say at Murrayfield you'll go to the after match and you sit down and you have a have a bit of a deal and they do that a uh, bit of a meal not too heavy but then they've got the speeches going on and they split you up in the teams so like myself and my brother Marty would sit with the Quinnell brothers you know and you sort of be like three Welsh um the two two Scottish guys, uh, partners, and two Welsh guys and their partners there, and it was all the room was like that. So it was a really good mixer. And then after the uh, official after match, they go, okay, now we're going to our second after match. And I thought it was a bit weird at the start because they said all the boys are going to go to are going to get on this bus, and all the girls are going to. So the whole place just segregated men and women. And the men went one way. We went to a big hotel and had a dinner there, and and the girls went the other way. And at first, both. You know, we, myself and my wife took kind of thought, oh, a bit weird, you know, whatever, I'll oh, we'll just go with it. And so then you have about 
three hours with all the guys and all the girls together and just everyone's just having an absolute hoot. Like, if, you know, and then come together for the fourth after match, which is a big dance at the end at another plush hotel. And it's all just put on and high roller and all this fun and getting together and hanging out. So that was, um, they stopped doing that, of course, because it just was too expensive. But that's that's why I think that's where all that, you know, if you think about it, all the days forever, those massive crowds and all that money they were getting and they weren't paying the players. Jeez, they must have had some good piss-ups back then. Sounds like you really played in the, um, the golden era of rugby. You get the best I, of both yeah. worlds. Seems like it. It seems pretty good. I don't, you know, yeah, just, I mean, it was just good to good to have that. And I remember just also, I mean, I'm sure the guys, the guys probably mates with their, um, their opposition players, but when we go to South Africa, we'd go and give the Natal boys a call on the, on the, you know, the Tuesday night and go out for the dinner with them on the Wednesday night. Wouldn't, wouldn't drink or anything, might have someone wave a glass of wine or anything, but it wasn't drinking, but just all hang out, catch up. Then we'd play against each other and then, and then they'd take us out for a party uh, on the Saturday night. And likewise, we'd do the same for them here. It was, um, it was pretty cool, you know, it was pretty cool. Yeah, mate, I can only imagine. Um, now, as you mentioned, you know, like you've, you've played in a number of different spots across the world. You know, you started off in Otago, you make your way up um, over to the UK, you're playing in Scotland, you play all around, all around the world. You know, like the likes of Murrayfield, you play at the World Cup. You know, before that, you were playing in Japan, and then they bring you closer to home or closer to Scotland. And you're playing in England. And you play for Newcastle and Northampton, and, and like you said, like we touched on you know the, the title with Otago, and you know beating the Springboks, and you know like playing at a Rugby World Cup must have been something and something in of itself. So, when you look back at your career, is there any like one game or? one tournament or one moment or one aftermatch that stands out amongst the rest for you or holds a special place in your heart? No, not really. It's, um, no, it's just kind of all, all, all blurs and that's good. But it's, it's not, not one in particular. I mean, there's just tons of good memories and also like things, sometimes things stick in your mind that aren't the best things either. You know, I mean, um, had a few decent injuries. I'm thankfully I don't, I don't flash back to them too much. Flashback to a couple of losses that you had and go, oh, damn it, you know, but, um, but not really because that's you win some, you lose some. But not, not one particular thing because, um, you know, I got to experience quite a few, quite a, quite a varied amount. So not, not hanging on to that, that one moment or that one aftermatch or that, that, that one thing because, um, yeah, it was, it was good. We used to have, maybe because I'm, maybe I'm a bit blurry because there's no lies and this is not good either, but it was, created a spirit after pretty much and this is like not one for the modern age football player pretty much every game we played for otago we have a court session afterwards every single game wednesday game saturday game but oh you know so that was like you know just different so there's lots of chat there's lots of chat and singing going on all over the place i'll tell you about the most remarkable thing to me um and this may sound a little bit soft but you talk about having a court session after every single game you play for Otago. And the fact that you boys drunk beer. Now, I mean, obviously I've been raised different, you know, where nowadays when I go down to the Bottolo, I've got such a wide range of options. But I can't even, like, I, I, they've been the odd night, you know, where I'll go out and buy myself a box of beer if I'm getting on it with my boys. But, you know, listening to, you know, some of the guys, and I'm guessing it would have been similar for yourself, where, you know, the, the amounts of beer that they got through, and that was what, you know, kept them going. Like, it really like it blows my mind. Like I can't imagine just like 
consistently just going out on just more than a dozen beers. But cool. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, like that would pretty much encompass your career. But then moving on from that, you know, obviously you come back to New Zealand, like you said, you did a bit of coaching. But um, one of the talking points I wanted to bring up and the one of the things I wanted to get a better idea of was, you know, you've got a, a bachelor of physio background, or that's what you um, that's what you graduated from Otago Uni with. But out, out of your career or coming out of rugby, you end up launching a rugby ball business um, in Leslie Rugby. So um, how did that, you know, opportunity again come about? And what can you tell us about, you know, what goes into making a quality rugby ball? Yeah, so um, my dad was importing sports sports gear, so I had I had a, a little insight there, and I came back and I I probably probably rushed into it too quickly. Actually, I should have sat back and just checked it out. But anyway, next minute you're in there, and you know I'm good at turning up and committing and being on time. But I was I I, I learned some pretty strong business lessons throughout. You know, just with how does it work, and, and especially around the employment and people and people management and uh, all of that stuff. But I had some I had some good people around me helping me out. Good great wife and good family and some good mentors as well so yeah the ball the ball thing was quite interesting so I thought okay well um at that stage there was a real gap there and official ball going into it didn't seem like there's any official balls going into the unions and I thought if I could go into the unions and sell into the clubs and then make the connection and sell more more kit and gear to them that'll be a good place to start so with and the rugby ball was seemed like the, the hardest thing to do because it's just um darn hard to do. So I thought I'll stick with that. So there's this one. So the, how do you do that? You go and find out where the rugby balls are made. So there's this place in India called Jalandhar, which is a city of about, I think it's about two million or maybe three, but I think it's more like two million. And it's uh, about the size of Dunedin or something like that. But it's it's India, right up the north in the in the Punjab. So I'll end up over my time there, I ended up going up to India about ten times, which is like it's a it's it's a it's a different place, India. You know, yeah. I used to really enjoy it, but I always used to think I'm glad I'm leaving as well. You know, just because you know, well, there's lots of reasons for that, but it just it, it, that's just how I was feeling when I said it. But anyway, got some had some good friends and amazing experiences up there. One of them was I went I saw the um, the 2020 World Cup final one year between Pakistan and India and India on the ground. And that was, I think, I was the only like um, you know non-Indian person in the whole bloody five hundred at this big party that I'm having. That was fun. But I went up there, and that's where they make rugby balls. So that's where all the rugby ball brands are made in this one town. So I went in there, and I was ended up getting the wrong trains and all the rest of it. Got up there and um, and met the people and started to understand it. And um, had uh, Tony Brown and um, Jeff Wilson helping me out with some R and D stuff, and and just pieced it together and it took a bit of time and we got to a point where one stage there were the official rugby ball of 11 provincial rugby unions throughout New Zealand that was that was pretty cool and cut a long story short ended up selling the business about three years ago and um, uh, Brendan Laney's got the assets of that and, and, and the ball R&D so it's uh, it's still out there and going so I'm kind of kind of proud of that it's pretty cool. Now, if you don't mind me asking, like, what what made you walk away from it? Was that you know you'd, you'd lost a bit of passion for it because you know that's almost you know you launched it and you created it. You know, it's Leslie Rugby. So yeah, yeah what, oh, what, I just you know, just, probably, a... just probably um, just probably just probably energy, you know. And I thought I probably got as far as I could. You know, I got to I got to a certain scale on it, and I was I was finding it hard to to scale it more. You know, and and, and small businesses, it's. Quite hard yakka, so I just just thought time was right, you know. 
yeah no fully and look where you are now man you can um yeah. you can hook up all your mates yeah. with the new um latest and greatest wheels you can venture <laughs> down to queenstown whenever you want and a bit more yeah. family time well that's right and it's just that you know it's um you know you see it small business people hey, you look around new zealand or wherever and there's guys and girls doing um, small business and maybe pouring coffees or and bakeries or bloody um, painting houses or whatever they're doing, you know, most businesses in New Zealand are small businesses, right? I think they're like crazy, like 90% of it, but maybe more, you know, but anyway, it's, 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 it's full commitment. Eh? It's full commitment. And I just, um, you're quite right. I've just, I've, I've been more present with my wife and family now just because you're not thinking of a hundred other things, probably in, in basic terms, you know. But hey, that all counts. It's all, it's all good, and it's, you know, it's all life, eh? You know, you move through it. I mean, you, you young guys, you're all expected to what have, um, what is it, fifteen or twenty jobs in your lifetime? Is that right? Something like that? Yeah, something yeah. close to that. So yeah, yeah. So it's quite just, you know, you, you can't, you know, you just, I suppose it's kind of healthy to move through cycles, eh? Yeah, definitely, mate. Yeah, you can never stop learning yeah. and. Um, sounds yeah. like your um, your family is uh, is richer from your your change of career for it, my friend. Um, in, in time, that is. So, yeah, I think that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, totally. I think that um, that pretty much wraps up everything that I've wanted to get from you, you know, from you know over the course of your career and where you've transitioned to after rugby. Um, you know, both with the the rugby ball stuff and then even now when with the car dealerships and working for Heartland. So. Um, thank you very much for that. But before I let you go, one of the I have two notes that I like to end um, each of my interviews on. Uh, the first being, and I'm not sure if you are a very ritualistic guy, bro, but did you have a game day routine um, in your rugby playing days? And if so, what was it? Yeah, I was I was pretty. Um, what was it? I just had my my gear packed and clean and set up the night before, and and then the day of the game, I used to you know, go through a bit of a jog and a stretch and just, just good focus, focus on the game. Used to hoover as, um, as many coffees as I could. Quickly, I used to go like, you know, no coffees during the week and then have about like six, six, about two and a half hours, three hours before the game. And um, Mark Ellis, he did it for the first time. He did a caffeine load down in Southland and he, and he did about, oh, I don't know, he would have done about like 12 or something cups of coffee and he was just losing it he's a funny he's the yeah you know he's a funny guy but yeah so mark mark fell off that one a bit and was a you know get into the coffees and um and then i have a few well, i can't even remember it now but just little warm-up routines but nothing too crazy i also used to like just to change not have it perfect because then it just sometimes you can be too perfect you just think it's you know your pet is your skin to too much of a robot so maybe just do something that's not quite in the routine as well every time, you know, so just to keep it fresh. Yeah, 100. Uh, what about yeah. like, did you put on one boot before the other, one sock before the other? Did you say a prayer before you went out, anything like that? You know, like, when oh, you that's a good one. The I did. I, 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 I did. That's a good one. I used to say, and I learned this from St. Pat Silverstream. So, so our first have been coached there, would always say a prayer before we went out on the, on the field and just, you know, pray for 
pray that we're going to enjoy it and no one gets seriously injured and all the rest of it. So, uh, well, you know, just then play for each other and all, all good stuff. And um, so I carried that through my whole career as well. Yeah, just saying a prayer. And I, um, I was on the New Zealand Rugby Foundation for about 10 years and we, well, not we, well, the, when I was on it and it's still going, it's a great organisation and um, we take care or, or endeavour to take care of the serious injured rugby players, you know, the, the, the guys and girls are unfortunately unfortunate enough to, to have a serious, say, like a spinal injury or a head injury or, you know, a neck injury or something like that. And we're, we try to wrap care around them and their, uh, their whanau um, in that moment and, and kind of guide them and, and help them and do that. So it was... I don't know. Just a, I always just to, just to pray. So hopefully I won't get seriously injured today, and no one else gets seriously injured. You know, and um, yeah, that was a good one. I felt always felt better for doing that. And I'm, you know, I, I wasn't a big prayer. I kind of like to think I'm kind of spiritual, but I'm not a big prayer. But that was one thing I, I did, and I felt felt really good for that. It was it was a good good little thing. So thanks for reminding me of that one. No, something I, I, I've done, you know, like like you said, I, I picked up at Silver Shame where we used to do a prayer before the game and um, yeah. and, and pretty much the majority of the teams that I've played in since I've left school, we've had some religious boys who always say a prayer before we go out and, yeah, that's always like, the staple from what I've gathered, you know, besides thanking like, the Lord for the day and all that, it's just, yeah, making sure that everyone leaves the field um, as healthy as they possibly can be. So, cool. Yeah, oh, yeah cool. I'm, I'm glad I've reminded that. I've reminded that. Yeah to you my friend but my last segment it's called 10 in the bin um so i've just got 10 questions for you my friend and if you can answer them as honestly as possible uh, it'd be greatly appreciated all right all right question number one what is your go-to beer on a night out it's either steiny classic or heineken and um, in the uk 100 percent guinness interesting i would i would have picked with you being a southerner or being a, an adopted southerner that you would have gone spades uh, yeah, no, I like, I, yeah, I, yeah you, you said honest, steiny clays, I like, <laughs> like a 5%, I like a 5% beer, you know, green 5% beer, yeah, so there I am, there I am. Oh, fair enough, fair enough, just, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. just thought I'd ask, all right, uh, who is the most notable coach's pet um, from any of the teams that you played in over the course of your career? Oh, well, looking back, it would have to be Tane Randall, because how could someone be so unorganised? And everything he did, and, and be the be the captain. So that would be him. Yeah. Who was your idol growing up? Idol growing up. Um, I just think Brian Williams was pretty cool in 1977, and you know when and and you know yeah Brian Williams. I think all those when he cracked the All Blacks in 1970 he was the man. And but even though I was just being born there, but I can remember him when I was seven or eight, thinking he was just the, the bomb, Brian Williams. Yeah. Funny story about Brian Williams. He actually, well, I had a bit to do with him when I lived with my dad in Auckland because he you know, obviously had a lot to do with the Ponsonby Rugby Club, the famous rugby club up there. And uh, I went to Mount Abergrammer for one year at school. And it was funny, like my dad, you know, always used to talk about him. You know, he's just like, yeah, you know, that's Brian Williams. But obviously, like, because he was just so before my time, I had no idea, you know, how big yeah. a deal he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the first so, Polynesian All Black. True, is it? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's the man. He is like, I think he made the All Blacks at like 18 or something. He just went up to uh, South Africa and he was ripped up. And then he just continued to rip up right throughout. Yeah. So he was, yeah. here's the guy. Yeah. Loving legend, BG Williams. All right. Um, mm -hmm. Question number four. 
what was your must do on a day off while you were playing professional rugby? Um, have a good feed with the boys. Have a good feed. Nice. Uh, what was your yeah. or what was your favorite cheat meal? You know, during your playing days, or what is even your favorite cheat meal now? Uh, just be like a, like um, Japanese. Yeah, Japanese for sure. Hundred percent. Are you talking like more sushi, so like rice stuff, or are you more like a noodles? Um, like, well, today, like winter, you know, Japanese curries, I, I, I get them in, nice. and then it's just, um, then it's just, yeah, whatever, whatever. I just love it. That's an amazing thing about Japan, eh? The food is just amazing. And then even the New Zealand-style Japanese, which you have over here, which is, you know, got the Kiwi style on it, you know, and it's just, just yeah, really love it. It's good. Japanese very, very cool, very, very cool place to um eat and experience for sure yeah mate i definitely need to get over there and um actually eat some some japanese food uh in japan yeah, yeah. Taste that much and, and um and it's a really when you go it's a really close it's really close in so many ways to the way maldives do things here you know just in um language and also in in food stylists as well there's there's quite a bit of crossover mm. all right so yeah. it should definitely yeah. hit home for me so this is a bit of a, a tough one because I'd, I'd more so shaped it as um, guys who are currently playing. And I guess the way I change it for you is that, so the question is, if you weren't a rugby player, what would you be? Um, and obviously we know what the stuff that you've done off the field and with, with your phys ed background, but why don't we shape it as, you know, if you weren't a rugby player, you know, could you have seen yourself playing any other sports? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of reincarnation. I'll definitely want to come back and, and play in baseball in America and play up front for Barcelona or Man Manchester United or something. Yeah. I'm a man you fan myself. All right. Question. <laughs> I'm a man you fan myself. So yeah, I, I actually think I should have been a football player, mate. Like I, I've never been the biggest guy. I'm about 75 kilos ringing wet. And for whatever reason, yeah. I stuck at rugby. I feel like my true calling should have been football. I don't know who to blame for that. Dad says that he never I actually pushed me to rugby, but um i feel I, in some ways i felt like there was no other option i, I wished know. i wished like, like i mean cricket i mean I'm, I'm a cricket fan as well i'm just terrible at cricket the last game of cricket i played i dropped a sort of a catch uh got hit for six rounds over my head at upper hut college and we, they lost the, we lost the ball so it was like 20 minutes later we found, finally found the ball and then i came into bat no lies dropped the catch hit for six Came to bat. All right, I'm gonna get these. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna get my own back. And the good, you know, the guy came in. And he thought, oh, and he bowled it. And I went, oh my jeepers! And here it comes. And it was a Yorker. That's like my kryptonite. And I said, should I go forward? Should I go back? Middle stump, golden duck. So I was terrible <laughs> at cricket. But yeah, just, but I, well, I, so the, the cricket people won't. Uh, but I'm a fan of it. I like watch. You know, I, I, I tag in with all the cricket. I like watching it and, and giving it, giving it some chat. But I always thought that um, football or soccer—they should have—they um, should have become a summer game in New Zealand when we were kids, and then we then they wouldn't be competing with rugby, and then guys like you and I would have been able to do both, you know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm nowhere near the athlete you are, mate. So I'm not sure how far I would have gone, but yeah, it's just something I well, yeah. I dream so about from time to time. <laughs> it would have been good for both sports because yeah, yeah I th definitely. I think. Mm. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, question number seven: Who was the cheapest teammate? You were ever around Stu Forster he's terrible can you remember him vaguely, was, vaguely. this is how bad he was mate this is how I used to <laughs> flat with him I used to flat with him and being and he lives in Waverley which is a suburb in Dunedin like a 
10 minute driver from the CBD. And I remember getting a taxi one and I was like, I can remember it was one year, I was like my, my Otago, cause you could issue kit, your, my Highlanders gear and my Otago, where's my t-shirt, you know, where's my socks, where's my shorts, I'm a guy. And you know, I'm usually pretty organized with that. And I was losing, I kept on losing all my stuff. I got a taxi one night and I got home and the taxi driver pulled up and goes, oh, do you live in this house there? And do you live with, and I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, oh, do you live with uh, Stu Forster? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you know, and I was about to pay him the 10 bucks or 15 bucks for the taxi ride. He goes, oh, normally when I come up here, Stewie, um, Stewie just gives me some uh, some some rugby kit and, and <laughs> instead of paying. And he'd been going into my room and giving the taxi driver my shit. <laughs> and not paying i'm like oh, what the hell and there's a thousand of those mate but what's that hey eh? like what legendary hey <laughs> you said that sounds pretty legendary quite an on yeah. cheap guy but pretty onto it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cheap cheap yeah yeah cheap cheap yeah all right yeah. uh question number eight who is well sorry i'm, I'm having to rephrase this question uh who Who's your who's your music guy? Like who's someone if you if they're jumping on your Spotify, like bang, is your go to straight away? As an as an artist. Mm-hmm. Oh, gee, whereas I'm big, big fan. And with Spotify now, it's just so varied, right? I hardly ever listen to an album anymore, but I'm a big music fan, but just where the mood is. But I mean, oh, it's it's a hard question for a, a real muso, but you know. Loving the Bob Marley, loving, loving, uh, loving all kinds of loving all kinds of music mixes. You know, I got about after my after my fiftieth party, I, I went from like no no followers. I think I had thirteen after that, so I think I'm really awesome. <laughs> yeah. right, mate, uh, question number nine: biggest grub you've played with and against? Grub. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, grub. Who's that? Oh, gee, was um, I find I found the um, I found the 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 uh, rugby. It might change now, but I found it. I found it more grubby up in the northern hemisphere than here. It's um, when I first went up to up to play in Scotland. Um, when when rugby went pro in New Zealand, the fighting just stopped. Pretty much just stopped overnight because what happened was is if you got in a, if you got in a fight and you got sent off, you um, if you got banned for three weeks, they'd say, "Okay, you're playing. You're playing 15 games this year for the Highlanders, so you're going to lose a fifth of your um, wages." That's how they did the equation. So the fighting in New Zealand just stopped overnight. And but then when I went up to the UK about in what well, end of '98, um, there's still full-on punch-ups in the field. You know, like punch-ups, and I was like, and I'm never a fan of that, but. Um, yeah, they, they were a bit more. They were a bit more like um, put put the knees in and all that kind of stuff. Which um, yeah, grub. I don't know about grubs. I'm pretty pretty good. I yeah, no no, can't, no not many grub stories for me. Fair enough. Yeah. All right, last question, my friend. Who was the better player, you or your brother? Uh, me. <laughs> uh, probably he was tougher. He's a tough guy, eh? All Fords are tough. Like, I couldn't believe it. There's one thing I, I remember. Um, just you know, you as a back, you'd be you train hard in that. But geez, the Fords, the Fords are tough guys, eh? Mm. How could you do that every day? Yeah. yeah. So now Marty was Marty. Marty was good. Marty is Marty is a great player. Yeah. 
Not at all, my friend. Um, but that's a wrap for this podcast. Uh, I have to say, honestly, and I know I say this with all of my guests that I have on, but this has been um, really cool for me. Uh, a lot of the time I get on guests who are currently playing or have you know, recently retired, but to get someone like yourself on who is you know, um, such a broad range of experiences you know, from your times playing in different parts of the world, but then to also throw in the fact that you know you played before the game went professional and afterwards and then all the work that you did you know coming back to New Zealand coaching and all the stuff you did with Leslie Rugby Balls yeah I really appreciate you taking some time out tonight to share your story with me and I just know that if I'm ever in need of a new car I know who to go to sweet as man all right man hey well all the best and we'll, we'll see you in person sounds like a plan John <laughs> <laughs>